Welcome to the Red Letter Christians podcast. Red Letter Christians gets our name from the Bibles that highlight the words of Jesus in red. And we're aspiring to live as if Jesus meant the stuff he said. We know that the loudest, most prominent voices representing Christianity in America haven't always been the most beautiful or the most faithful voices. And we know that the way we change the narrative is by changing the narrators. We are committed to amplifying the voices of people who are dedicated to Jesus and to justice. How much longer will justice be when Hello, everybody. Thanks for joining and listening in on the show. This is Shane Claiborne, and I am in Chicago as I'm recording this, and I'm I'm at this powerful gathering called the Parliament of the world's religions. And there are about 8,000 people here from 90 different countries or something. And there's like 200 different religious traditions. So it is something special. And uh, I'm speaking today. There's lots of great friends that are out here, folks that are uh, dear friends and partners with Red Letter Christians. Richard Rohr, Father Richard Rohr is here. I got to see him last night. Gave him a cross we made out of a gun. <laughs> and uh, Got to hug his neck a little bit. Uh, Reverend Barber's here. I think Reverend Tracy Blackman's supposed to be here. Paul, uh, Paul Rauschenbusch is here. Um, Doug Paget, Jim Butler. I saw all, the, all these people that uh, are just converging. And then all these folks from other countries and different faiths. So one of the things that we've been doing is we brought a whole bunch of equipment, forges and anvils, and we've been chopping up guns and allowing people to take the hammer as we beat them into garden tools. Man, I wish this was not just a podcast, but a video I could show you, but we've got these forges that we've had fired up and people from all over the world and all different faiths, like taking the hammer and declaring that we are going to turn from death to life to build a world of peace. Mm, it is something. So, um, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna speak in just a little bit, and I think a lot of it you can see on the website. But the Parliament of World Religions meets like every few years, so I hope this is an ongoing partnership. But, you know, I was thinking about it, and I've been in this series talking about rethinking life, my uh, latest book, and the the subtitles embracing the sacredness of every person. And one of the things that this gathering in Chicago has done is had people of all different faiths recognizing that many of our religions, the best of them, has been perverted and distorted at times in order to camouflage people's own hatred or bigotry or violence. I mean, we, we think of certainly the, the, um, you know, Muslim extremism, the violent forms of terrorism that people try to camouflage as Islam, even though there's Muslims all over the world that have denounced um, that violence. Um, there's there's Christians, right? I mean, we're certainly not immune. All through history, we've had folks that have twisted our faith to 
uh, justify their violence and blown up abortion clinics or blessed the bombs falling out of other countries. Or, um, I mean, even the Ku Klux Klan to this day has a section of their website trying to defend their theology as Christians. So, um, you know, Jewish folks have had folks distort their faith. Uh, extremists went into the uh, Ibrahimic mosque and in, in uh, there in Hebron and shot uh, folks, Muslims during prayer. So all of us, you know, today I, I'm going to be remembering those words of Martin Luther King, where he said, these are extreme times that we're living in. And the question isn't whether or not we will be extremists, but what kind of extremists will we be? Will we be extremists for hatred or extremists for love? Woo! And we have seen enough religious extremists for hatred, and we need some extremists for love. So this this section, you know, even as I was thinking yesterday, I um, was did an a, a event with one of the rabbis here in Chicago, and um, I was grieving the um, anti-Semitism that's often evident, you know, in in different streams of Christianity, um, even in our theology. We, we were talking about that a little bit. And this section of the book that I talk about anti-Semitism and um, is called We Theologized Hate. And you know, we, we all have prejudices, ways that we prejudge other people, um, you know, based on their um what they're wearing or their language or their sexuality or the color of their skin. Uh, um, but they're, you know, when prejudice leads us to treat others unjustly, that's where it becomes discrimination. And to discriminate, we also need a certain degree of power. So my friend Jamar Tisby says, racism is prejudice plus power. So, you know, we all kind of prejudge and we want to condition ourselves not to have, you know, racial bias and things like that. But we're always going to like have these kind of prejudices in, in ways that we think. And yet to be able to say, no, we are not going to discriminate. We're going to see build on the things that we have in common and we're going to dismantle the kind of discrimination that happens to other people. I mean, that's what we're about, right? So the power that that um, to dis discriminate is not just against individuals sometimes, but entire groups of people. And that's, you know, where like anti-Jewish hatred and systemic prejudice against Jewish people um, and others, you know, has, has come. So, uh, you know, as I think about this, there are historians that call anti-Semitism, the original sin of Christianity, because we see the roots of it in the earliest days of Christianity. Um, uh, even following Jesus's crucifixion, there are some people who said it was the Jews that killed Jesus rather than our own sins, you know, or this cocktail of political power and religious piety that um, uh, was also evidenced in our own sins that that led to Jesus's death. But um, when we begin to see this, it's, you know, this anti-Jewish prejudice, it, it takes root early on, but it took centuries for that power dynamic to shift to where Christians actually had the power to carry out and discriminate and destroy and hurt and ultimately even commit genocide against Jewish people. So 
as I studied this, I built on the work of David Gushy and other scholars to see like how hate becomes policy. And, you know, it begins to have, this is all really relevant to today, by the way. I mean, anti-Semitism obviously is alive and well as we think of Charlottesville and the white supremacists that march saying Jews will not replace us. Or we think of the Tree of Life synagogue, uh, the worst act of um, anti-Semitic terrorism uh, in the modern era in America. Um, we, we, we think of the rise in um, hate crimes and anti-Semitic um, hate crimes that have happened. And, and so listen to this, though. This is what was so interesting. When you look at history, um, the prohibition of intermarriage, uh, sexual intercourse between Jews and Christians, listen to this, goes all the way back to 306 A.D., 300 AD, we first saw that that Christians and Jews should not intermarry. Jews and Christians were not permitted to eat together in that same century. Um, Jews were not allowed to hold public office. That was a policy that formed in the 6th century, 535. Uh Jewish books began to be burned as early as like the 600s AD. Um, Jews were not permitted to be plaintiffs or witnesses against Christians. So all this, like that was in the 1100s. So you start to see this like discrimination with power begin to carry out and and take the shape of policies. Um, And of course, you know, we think obviously immediately to the Nazis and to Hitler. But listen to this. Jewish clothes, clothing was marked with special badges in 1215 AD to begin to mark them and discriminate against them. Um, Construction of Jewish synagogues was prohibited in the 1200s, 1222 AD. Um, Compulsory ghettos were mandated, not, not just in the you know, Hitler's Germany, but in 1267 AD, Jews were not per- permitted to obtain um, academic degrees in 1434. So all that to say, like, there's this whole history of anti-Semitic discrimination and policies, and hate is a resilient thing. Uh, it, it begins to, to, you know, show itself in other ways uh, that are overt and more subtle. Um, but the devil is a liar. He may be keep. He may keep telling the same lies over and over, um, in new ways. But the devil is a liar. And so we we've got to really, I think, we have a responsibility, uh, especially of the, those of us who love Jesus and call ourselves Christians, to have a better narrative of our faith that not that that roots out this anti-Semitism. So, you know, as, as we think about the complicated relationship that we've had with our Jewish cousins, uh, really from the beginning, um, ever since, you know, uh, folks began proclaiming that the long-awaited Messiah had come as a Jewish carpenter from Galilee, it's so important to never erase the Jewishness of Jesus. And obviously, Jesus is was is the father with the father since the creation of of everything and yet it's so interesting that jesus went to synagogue he uh, observed passover he knew the law he entered into this holy story in the flesh and we can't erase that jewishness of jesus uh that that um 
this it's one of the biggest debates in the early church right was what happened when you became a christian did you need to become jewish you know in order to become a christian did you have to be circumcised did you eat kosher um, these were the questions that the early Christians were ask, asking, and much of the tension in the early church formed around how Christians related to Jews. And the, the Christians didn't have the power to overtly discriminate um, in a systemic way yet, but they they were beginning to um, f- try to figure out what is our relationship to, to Jewish folks. And um, as it became the majority religion in Rome, we talked about that, you know, um, one of the last shows during Constantine, that's when we really begin to see the power shift and Jews become really part of the scapegoat um, and the targeted hatred of, of uh, Christians. So one of the theologies behind this, right, became known as supersessionism, the idea that the Jewish story ended with the birth of Christ and the church has superseded Israel now as God's chosen people. So there's this entire key theology that is actually known as adversus Judeos against the Jews. And that theology traces all the way back to the fourth century. Um, folks that I, I quote often, like St. John Chrysostom, the golden mouth preacher, as we call him. Um, he was, um, he, he, had some terrible things to say uh, about Jewish folks, not so golden. He was called the golden mouth because that's what his, his name kind of connotated in, in Greek. But, um, and he was a great preacher sometimes, right? <laughs> but out of the same mouth can spew truth and, um, and untruth. And so he portrayed Jews as heretics, blasphemers, called them prophet killers, Um and so we can see that someone can be brilliant on some things and still blind on others. And the way that he speaks of Jewish people is uh, certainly shows some of those blind spots. Some of the things that Chrysostom said um, were that Jews were uh, dogs, goats, pigs. And when we begin to describe human beings made in the image of God as animals, it begins to um, desecrate the sacredness, the image of God Um in them, and we, we've seen that with refugees. We've seen it with um, uh, in some of the great, the, the the terrible genocides, like in in Rwanda. People began to refer to folks as cockroaches, right? Um, um, and, and and it it paves the way to some of that language of hatred um, becoming actual acts of hate. So um, when. John and other early Christians, um, including like Justin Martyr, Tertullian, Cyprian, Origen, they had some very overt um, anti-Jewish theology, as they called them assassins of Christ at one point, assassins of God killers, that they, they, that, you know, the Jews killed Jesus, so they were, they were guilty of deicide. So that, that ends up obviously being, um, beginning to leave more than just a theological mark on how we relate to folks. And now you fast forward a little bit, right? I mean, we're, this is, we're going deep today, y'all, because I think we've got to understand, you know, as the hate crimes, anti-Semitic hatred is rising all over our country and in many places around the world, we've got to, we've got to understand it a little bit better. So in the 16th century, um, you know, when we get to the Reformation, Martin Luther had, uh, I mean, he began with uh, with some sympathy and compassion for Jewish people. He wrote an essay in 1523 called uh, Jesus Was a Jew. Um, 
And he condemned the fact that church had dealt with Jews as if they were dogs rather than human beings. This is Martin Luther, right? But just 20 years later, right, in 1543, he published uh, an, uh, one of his writings, The Jews and Their Lies. And it's a 65,000-word manifesto calling for a litany of horrors, including the destruction of synagogues, Jewish schools, homes. Um, I mean, I almost don't even want to quote him, but this is Martin Luther. And he said, we are at fault in not slaying them. He called them whoring people with a law that must be accounted as filth. Oh, I mean, it really does make me sick at my stomach. And there is some work that um, Lutherans and uh, other, you know, products of the Reformation have done to try to really combat that theology. But I think a whole lot more needs to be done. I mean, the fact that a lot of folks don't even know that he said this stuff, it kind of got buried, right? But it's got to, I mean, the truth sets us free. So we got to also say, I mean, Martin Luther, I quote him sometimes too. He said some good things. He had some good truth, some great correctives to um, that needed to be reformed in the Reformation. But he also really got it wrong when it comes to this anti-Semitic theology and um, rhetoric. So, you know, it's I, I don't think it's a stretch to say that some of this paved the, the kind of uh, theological found, foundation for the outright slaughter of Jewish folks under the Nazis. Um, I, I kind of go into a lot of detail on this, but uh, one of the Lutheran bishops in Germany um following the the Kristallnacht, the two days of Nazi incited mob violence um that that we we remember you know as one of the real darkest spots in in history he wrote and distributed a pamphlet this is a a Lutheran bishop um that said Martin Luther on the Jews away with them and it defended and justified the the absolute terrorism towards the Jewish community under the Nazis so um He's quoting Luther, I mean, overtly. Um, so, you know, he, later, um, as Jews, you know, experienced the Holocaust and the um, some of the most horrific things that we've ever done to other human beings, um, there was a theology that, and many Christians didn't do enough to condemn Martin Luther word uh, Martin Luther's words and they, and they had centuries to do it right to to get this right to begin to correct it um so it's it's also you know it's not just Luther but also um Paul uh, um, Pope Paul the um the fourth I believe it was issued a papal bull removing the rights of Jews so this is the you know the Catholic Church it wasn't until Vatican II in 1965 that the Roman Catholic Church formally rejected its doctrinal anti-semitism so we did all this you know Hitler had the Bible in his hand and he said things like just as Jesus cleansed the temple of the Jews I'm cleansing the world of them and, and, and uh, one of my mentors said, when we twist the cross, we get a swastika. You twist the cross and you get a swastika. You, you, you can end up using the Bible as a weapon. And, uh, and that's what's happened in many places. You know, and as we think of um, 
the resistors, though, many of them were fueled by their faith. So in this book, Rethinking Life, I try to tell the stories of the, bur- the, the, the best and the worst of Christianity. And a lot of times they are competing forces at the exact moments in history. Christians are responsible for some of the worst evils of colonization and of, I mean, like in the Holocaust, uh, so much of this uh, slave trade, and yet there were resistors that were also fueled by their Christian faith. There were certainly others, but, you know, as we're telling the full story of the Christian faith, it's so important to think that, you know, in the middle of the, the, um, Hitler's regime, you had the confessing church. You had Dietrich Bonhoeffer who was executed. You had, um, incredible folks like Corey, uh, Tenboom, who wrote, you know, her, her diary, the hiding place, her writing is uh, captured, but there's a great story of her, by the way. You know, she's the daughter of a Dutch watchmaker who rescued hundreds of Jewish people um, before, she, you know, Corey and her family were arrested and sent to concentration camps. But um, uh, she tells a story of, you know, trying to enlist a pastor's help to take care of this little baby. And so she goes out and she brings out a baby that needs to be rescued. And the pastor leaned over and looked at the baby and um and, and then he said, we could lose our lives for that Jewish child. And Corey's father overheard that comment and took the child in his arms and said to the pastor, you say we could lose our lives for this child. I would consider that the greatest honor that could come to my family. God, right? So that kind of courage in the face of hatred is is contagious and yet the youth movement and you know hitler's germany like folks like the white rose youth movement that were resisting uh all the propaganda and the language you had folks like uh Franz uh, Jägerstatter, who was a conscientious, uh, conscientious objector to the Nazis. He refused to fight. And many of these people, they were killed, right? And yet they insisted that the best witness that they could make for Christ was to die in the face of that kind of hatred, especially when so much of it is being done in the name of Christ or being used, um, uh, using scripture to try to justify it. So uh, there's so many heroic stories of that kind of courage. Even today, one of the communities I've written about and visited and love is um, called the Tent of Nations. And it is in the Palestinian land um, over um, in um Israel and Palestine, right? So there's this encampment that is in Palestinian land, but the Israeli settlers have been um, pushing in on that space. So all around it, there's these Israeli settlements that are being built around this Palestinian family's land. And the there's been a lot of hatred and graffiti and uh, folks that have t- um, tried to chop down the olive trees in their orchard. But the Nassar family, they're absolutely amazing. And they have painted this beautiful mural that says, we refuse to be your enemies. And they continue to show love. And I remember asking them, what gives you the strength to do this? And they said, "Um, Jesus. And so they built relationships with the um, 
Jewish settlers near them. And one of the things that helped me realize is the backdrop of some of the injustices that we see happening in the Holy Land right now in, in Israel and Palestine. The backdrop is all of the pain and persecution and violence that has been targeted to Jewish people over the centuries. I mean, you look at what we started with, all of those laws for hundreds of years, going back to 300 AD, that were targeted policies of hatred towards Jewish people. And now as they got um, established in Israel, we see some really troubling sickening things happening. There's some of the same ghettoization that like pushing people into areas that uh, that were done to them. The walls, the, the 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 wall between Israel and Palestine is one of the most uh, um, sophisticated apartheid separation walls in the entire world. And I think of my friend Sammy Awad over there who is um a Palestinian Christian and he um he said I I I wanted to understand what's behind that wall. And he, he often tells a story of how he went to Germany and he went to the concentration camps. He went to the Holocaust Museum. He saw what was done to the Jewish people. And he said, I, I came back with a lot of compassion in my heart. And he said, now I look at the wall and I don't just see hatred. I see fear. And that fear doesn't justify the injustices that we see happening um, in Palestine, but it does help explain it. And one of the beginnings of all of this is to see the people on the other side of the wall, you know, to realize that we are all made in the image of God. And uh, one of the things that happened in Philadelphia that was so powerful was, um, I mean, it started terribly. Um, one, one of the things that happened was an act of hatred towards Muslim folks where someone cut off the head of a pig and dumped it in front of the mosque. But Jewish folks and Christians began to vigil outside of the mosque so our Muslim neighbors could go worship without fear. And then this happened. A Jewish cemetery was vandalized with symbols of hatred and anti-Semitism. And the Muslim community stepped up. They rose up and raised thousands and thousands of dollars to repair it. So there's something powerful about loving the people who are different from us, who are, uh, you know, insisting that we are going to reclaim our faith as a faith for love rather than hatred. Uh, we need that kind of love, that kind of love that refuses to be enemies, that refuses to theologize hatred and insist that God is love. So thanks for listening in, y'all. I'm coming from Chicago today, recording at the Parliament of World Religions. And I'm going to turn this off and get back out to hang out with some of my Muslim and Jewish and friends of other faiths that are here. I love you. I'll talk to you next week. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Red Letter Christians podcast. Too often, Christians have used our faith as a ticket into heaven and a license to ignore the world we live in. But at Red Letter Christians, we believe our faith is not just about going to heaven when we die, but also about bringing heaven to earth while we live. For more information on Red Letter Christians and upcoming events, additional resources, you can go to the show notes or our website, redletterchristians.org. You can also support Red Letter Christians by giving a one-time donation or becoming a monthly sustainer. Just go to our website and click the red donate button. Thank you for being a part of this conversation and for being a part of this movement.